So let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your grace and your mercy to us. We thank you uh, for the way that you strengthen us, the way that you work in us uh, to do your will, to do that which is well-pleasing to you. We ask, Lord, that you would open up your word to us, that you would instruct us, uh, that we might be all the more conformed uh, to the gospel, which calls for righteousness, truth, and love. And we thank you again for that, and we ask your blessing in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so we are in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, and uh, uh, this has been a bit of a doozy of a week for me, um, uh, having gone to Synod and spent the week in uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Um, and I was also on a uh, special judicial committee, which required a lot of normal, I guess, I guess you could say overtime. <laughs> like the first meeting went till 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so uh, if I seem a little burnt out, I probably am. <laughs> but nonetheless, let's look into God's word and, and, to, to, uh, and, and I'll be making a couple of comments actually about this passage uh, relative to that special committee work and, and some other things that occurred there. So, chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral and covetous 
or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do not judge those who are, who are do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. And we conclude here, but I will just note that in the next chapter, uh, Paul is going to be picking up on what about judging people outside the church? What about taking a brother uh, to courts that are outside the church? And he's going to be addressing that, but we'll save that one for next time. So I began last week uh, just giving a quick summary of the entire letter of Paul. And I, several reasons I did that. One is I really wanted to emphasize that pride is an underlying theme in many of these things. And when Paul was discussing division, he referred specifically to pride as being an issue. He's, as he's addressing here with sexual immorality, he's actually talking about that they were proud because they were tolerant of the sexual immorality. So the issue of pride actually was probably uh, uh, more significant than the actual issue of the sexual immorality, although we want to be careful in trying to say one outweighed the other. And as I mentioned, he's going to go to the issue of taking a brother or sister in Christ to a civil court. Um, and oftentimes, again, he's going to be mentioning and bringing up the whole issue of pride. Uh, then he kind of breaks from pride and addresses the issue of, okay, what are or is the relationship between men and women in the church, men and women that are, where you have one in the church, one outside the church, uh, married people who have one spouse is a believer, one spouse is not a believer. Uh, how do you deal with uh, somebody who is a, a virgin? What kind of uh, encouragement do we give them? And uh, when it is best to marry. Uh, so he's going to be addressing all that. That occurs in chapter 7. Then he goes to offering uh, things to idols. And again, pride's going to come back into that uh, topic. Uh, he's going to uh, discuss a number of social issues. And, and as believers, you know, how do we conduct ourselves? Um, and then we're going to eventually get to chapter 13, which is addressing love. And basically, what is our right um, position as we seek to minister both to those outside the church and inside the church? And so that chapter is actually going to define that. And it is going to exclude pride. Um, he will also be discussing a number of other topics such as prophecy and tongues. And again, it can be very quick that people 
who have a gift of speaking in one way or the other believe they're a little better than everybody else. And so that's going to also come in. And, um, and so it is, uh, and there, there are several other things he's going to be getting to, the resurrection and, of course, the collection uh, of the saints in the final chapter, um, the collection of money for the saints. And, uh, but this whole notion of pride is, is really permeating uh, this book in terms of what the apostle is trying to say and, and uh, accomplish uh, by it. And obviously, he, it's, he gave it by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's part of scripture. And so it is much more than just Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Okay? Paul wrote a whole lot more than what we have here. Okay? These, these letters from Paul are not the only ones. And there's one likely that was prior to this, the first Corinthians, and there may be even another one in between. Uh, we don't know that, but we do know that what we have here is not only a letter, but it is the word of God. And it is preserved as it is uh, for our teaching. So last week I focused in on, on a, a number of things here. Um, communication, we talked about pride. Um, the notion of Paul being absent and yet present, that he is with the church, he is part of the body as, as he's seeking to um, address them. And I somewhat left off on my fourth point, which will be my first point today, which is uh, the process of discipline. And um, so in, in that, we find that in, in verse 4, where Paul gives some instruction on how that's to be accomplished. And if you look at verse 4, it says, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul is telling us here that he is again a part of that church and he calls for them to exercise justice to act with jurisprudence and with righteousness, but also with power. And that power being that which comes from the Holy Spirit uh, through God and in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. As it says in the end of, or in chapter four, you are gathered together along with my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it, he has the sense in chapter 5, he calls for the destruction of the flesh. That's the end goal. That's the end goal in his rebuke. It's not just simply to get somebody to stop. Okay. So what does it mean? 
destruction of the flesh? That's a real question. That's exactly what it's saying. Okay, so he's repeating what he's going to be saying quite a few times. But he also speaks down in verse, uh, um, where is it here? Verse 6. Okay, he immediately goes into this illustration of the leavened and unleavened. And the leavened is what? When we think of something uh, being leavened, we think of sin, but it's, it's yeast, right, in bread. And what does, what's the effect of leaven? It immediately spreads everywhere. It's worse than the coronavirus. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. He's received back, correct? He's, 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 
So there is a putting to death this sin. It's very much part of that. And the, when, where he goes on then to speak of the leaven, he's saying, as a believer, as one who has been uh, carried, if you would, uh, by the Spirit into the sacrifice of Christ, and we are put to death, right? We, we are reckoned to be dead. It's the way Paul says it in another place. That as that occurs, we're also resurrected to life. And this is happening um, in a sense, in a step, and yet in a sense, in eternity that we don't even comprehend. Okay? So our sin is put away. And it's kind of interesting that this passage here, as hard as it sounds to deliver such a one to Satan, that means the church simply doesn't have the capability or capacity to minister to him. It's not like we, we call up, say, hey, can you come pick this one up? You know, we don't do that, right? So how is it that we deliver someone to Satan? Well, what it's really driving at here is that the church no longer has any further advice, help, um, progress that it can make. And so there's a point, Paul's saying, where you do have to draw a line and tell somebody you need to leave. And we are no longer, it's called excommunication. We are excommunicating, communion being brought to the table, communion being the sacrifice of Christ, being connected to that sacrifice, having that testimony. But now you have somebody who is being ex, they're being removed. Not because we all of a sudden determine them not to be a believer. Why else would you have this statement that, they're, that they, in the end, that they will be restored. We don't need to make that judgment. That's God's judgment. They may, in fact, be reprobate, and they may, in fact, not be in that. But that's not how Paul's speaking to them. When you excommunicate, when you put someone out, you're actually doing it in love. This action here is no different than what Paul says in chapter 13. It is caring for somebody. But there are, there are times where the church has, can't care. The person is not recognizing the church. The person is disputing with the church. The person is not listening. And if they're not listening and they're only disputing, then the church needs to take this action. And Paul says, I'm with you in spirit as you do this. Paul's not saying, go do this because I told you. Paul's saying, we, as the body, need to take this action. Okay? And so he goes immediately then to the issue of the leaven. And the leaven is... 
a little more general. If you equate leaven with sin, are we all pure, unleavened people? No, right? We still have sin in us, but we have this calling to continually remove that. When we see that leaven, we are to remove it. We're to confess it. We're to put it away. And we have to understand that one sin in our life, particularly that is known, that we have kind of put up with, that, uh, you know, we kind of have a tendency to isolate those ones from the rest and, and say, I'm working on it. But we need to understand that any sin has an overflow effect. Any sin in our lives can bring about more sin because it's the nature of sin. It's a defiance against what God has required. That's ultimately what sin is. It's to go against God's will. And so when we do that, that is going to impact us. And what Paul is saying here in verse 7, for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast rejoicing. Okay, what's a feast? Feast is fun, you know. Let's go to the feast, right? So you have this feast, and in that feast you celebrate. And you are celebrating uh, Christ's sacrifice for us, the Passover. Okay? And one of the things, uh, it's kind of interesting, is that the Lord's Supper, is the Lord's Supper a happy occasion or a sad? Absolutely. And why? What, what's one of the purposes that are, is stated in, I believe, 2 Corinthians 11 uh, for having it? It's doing two things. Okay? It's looking back at the sacrifice, and it's doing what? Looking forward to the resurrection. Okay? That is the essential meaning of the Lord's Supper. Okay, so it is a sad happy, but it ends in happy. Okay, so it is a time to rejoice. And I think sometimes as Christians, we fail to rejoice in God working in us. I can honestly say, I can't give you much detail. It would really be a long lesson. But I can actually say I was converted, I believe, when I was 19. And I think I'm a little different now. Not much, but there have <laughs> been some changes. Absolutely. The perspectives, the, the scriptures, the knowledge of what's going on in the scriptures. I was raised Roman Catholic. I didn't have any idea what reform meant. I always thought reformed was some kind of a school 
They took care of bad kids, you know. I, I, it took me a while. It really did. And, uh, but we grow in grace and knowledge. And I think I can actually say I rejoice in what God has brought. And what I, in ways that I have learned and ways that I've grown. I'm not the same person I was even 10 years ago. God continues to work in us. And we need to be able to uh, rejoice in those things. So when we put away sin, yes, there's a confession. And we need to be serious about that confession. We need to be truthful about that confession. But we also need to rejoice in forgiveness. And I think we oftentimes forget the extent to which we ought to rejoice. Paul's going to actually tell the Philippians, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Okay? And so we have this leaven. But this leaven he's speaking about is also he's aiming at pride once again. Okay? Because the pride that the Corinthians had was they thought they were doing something great in of themselves. They didn't find this in scripture that, hey, let's just put up with this man who uh, has his father's wife. Okay? That's not how that happened. They, they didn't find that in scripture. In fact, they found the opposite in many places. And so they had to come to that understanding that they not only were erring in thinking that way, but they were erring in the pride that they were demonstrating. They were actually proud of themselves, that they were more tolerant, if you would, uh, than anybody else. And that is, again, part of the leaven. Um, and so, and we talked about this last week, we get down to uh, verse 9, I wrote to you in my epistle about not keeping uh, company, essentially, but sinners. He gives a whole bunch of categories here who are in the world. He's not saying it is the church's job to go out and correct everyone. Now, there is actually some theology out there, which I'm not going into, that says that's part of the task of the church. And uh, in some cases, becomes central to the church. The church's job is to influence the government to, to, to see and demand of the government that we do certain things certain ways, and if we don't, well, we're not going to throw any missiles because we don't, I don't think we have any here. Uh, but that's the kind of role that they see uh, the church having, and, and it's not. Paul's saying, hey, I'm not telling you you can't Talk to these people that are out there. And in whatever category of sin. And, um, and we talked about that some last week, and I still want to continue uh, with that thought and work through that some more. Uh, but I just want to, for the rest of our time today, um, look at... Uh, Well, let me go to it, I guess. I think I've got a little, enough time. 
So this notion of not keeping company with the unbeliever, um, anyone named a brethren is what it says in chapter or verse 11. Um, he says we, we need to uh, have communication with them. It's not just a matter that, um, um, that you should not. Paul says, I have written to you not to keep company with an immoral person. But he doesn't mean those who are of the world. He doesn't mean those who are caught in that. And you have an interesting mix here. Okay, because he was talking about what? A brother who was in the church, who was in sin, and what was the action there? To excommunicate, right? To deal with it forcefully, effectively, and straight on. But when it comes to those who are in the world doing the exact same thing, okay, how do we communicate with them? How do we speak with them? And part of the reason I'm doing this whole study is, is actually a follow-on to what I did with Nancy Piercy's book. And by the way, it was interesting. I was talking to Mike McGee at Synod, and I asked him if he ever heard of it. He said, yeah, I read that. He said, and then I went to one of her conferences, and She's a terrible speaker. <laughs> um, so just stick with the book. <laughs> but uh, it's a very well-written book, but uh, apparently her speaking <laughs> didn't quite meet the same standard, at least in my mind. But it's, it's very important that we understand when we're talking to those in the world, there is a sense in which we say, thus saith the Lord, right? This is sin, and you need to repent. There is an aspect of that. There has to be, okay? But the goal isn't so much to get them to understand that need to repent, but to understand that that is sin. Because in many cases, they don't consider it sin. It's been justified. Thank you. 
the Pharisees were like, how can you be with unclean people? But they need a savior. And Christians have to see that fundamentally that they're depraved in order to be any truly any earthly good. Absolutely. And what was Paul's great mark in terms of sin? His great mark in terms of sin. What sin, what sin was Paul most noted for? Persecution of the church. Standing there and saying, go ahead and stone him. Okay? And one who was in authority to do that. Okay, so, uh, yes, we have to uh, uh, address people. Uh, sometimes people like to say where they're at. But there's a sense in which that's a good way to say it, but there's another sense in which it's more to it than that. We have to address them in terms of how Scripture describes where they're at. Okay? If we, if we come from our own self and say and convey in any way, shape, or form, I'm not like that. What is that? That's this very pride that Paul's talking about. Okay? So when we seek to bring correction, when we seek to communicate, we're coming not as the one who declares what is right and wrong. Because we are sinners. And we have not yet purged all the leaven. Okay? We have not, Paul even says, regarding this whole notion of destruction of the flesh, flesh he says later in Corinthians, he's going to say, I die daily. In Romans chapter 7, he reminds us of an ongoing, constant need to recognize sin in our life, to put it away with all under the umbrella of Christ's sacrifice that it has already been dealt with. Okay, so when we go to people, one of the key elements of speaking to people is that we are not speaking of ourselves, but we're calling them to the authority of Scripture, to the Lord himself. Right, and we, but even there, um, if I see somebody in the church doing something, if I'm going up to them and saying, you know, I really think I have a problem with that, okay? That immediately tells you where it's coming from. It's coming from me, I have the problem. If we're, not, if we're not approaching people in the church with how do you think Christ is being honored in what you're doing? 
And can you show me from the scriptures how it is that Christ is honored in what you are doing? So we have to be very careful that we don't do the opposite. The, the Corinthians were um, taking pride in their tolerance. We don't want to turn around and take pride then in our swift judgments and our rebukes. And we can. We're very susceptible to it. It has to be from the scriptures. It has to be from the word of God so that it is not coming from me internally, but it is coming from God. And one of the things that uh, I'll just share briefly um, that I learned, I think, I hope, in this uh, very long appeal case that I was called to review is that nothing will hurt the discipline process more uh, than seeking to minister to help while denying the, the process. The process is a biblical thing, okay? We're not only given Matthew 18 from our Lord, but we're also given many passages in Proverbs. We're given many passages that help us and guide us and direct us on how it is that we are to proceed with somebody when they are sinned. But we also need to minister to them, right? And by that I mean remind them of the sacrifice, remind them of the doctrine, remind them of the righteousness that they have by Christ. We can never do one and not the other. And that is actually a statement that ended up coming out where we had a pastor who was really trying to pastor a situation and ended up letting go of the process. But we can also go in the other direction and make the process everything and forget to minister. And it was stated at one point, you know, I, I either was going to minister or I was going to follow the process. And that's a truly false dichotomy. You can't do one without the other. You have to follow both. They're both needed. They're both part of it. So when Paul is giving this judicial direction, is he any less ministering? Is he any less encouraging them in the very gospel they believe? No. And that's one of the things that we really should pick up from this chapter. You can't do one without the other. And it's very easy to do it. It's very easy to fall into, I would say, bean counting <laughs> or so spiritually high-minded that there is no such thing as bean counting, okay, and process. The RCUS has a constitution. If we follow that constitution, 
Are we biblical? I would hope so. If we find something in the Constitution that's unbiblical, I think we have a requirement to tell somebody that it's unbiblical. Okay? And so it's not just a matter of a, a document, it's a matter of the church. The church operates in both of these spheres. And we have to be very careful not to, um, to, to lose sight. Right discipline takes time, takes for certain allowances, it takes for documentation, takes for proper consideration of all actions, and even um, uh, temperament, if you would, as the scriptures require. And it does require it. But one thing that will always happen in an issue of discipline is when pride raises up. I know something you don't know, or I'm speaking out of myself, or I'm speaking of myself being higher than someone else, and I begin with pride. It overthrows everything. It overthrows the ministerial side. It overthrows the process side. Yeah. And that, Constitution. And that's exactly what this passage is doing. Yeah, that would be pride, is what I'm saying. Yeah. But, uh, um, and I'm also afraid as well. I was just starting to figure she was first, sorry. Okay. All right, yeah, it's, it's time to, to end. Um, if, again, I'm always open to questions, uh, even if I don't seem like it. Um, okay, go ahead. Quick, is it? That idea of victim to me is pride. Even uh, talking with brothers, I can very easily see myself as a uh, threatened, you know, and I begin maybe taking a good thing and I start turning it into something where I demand uh, a response. Well, I, I, I somewhat agree. I would only say this. I believe there are truly victims. Yes and no. <laughs> no, they're victims. The question is, I mean, if, 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 you, um, if you are responding to somebody unbiblically, giving the wrong direction, that is... Um, that in of itself could be victimizing. If I teach false doctrine, I am making everybody that hears me a victim of that. Oh, I'm, I'm going deeper than that. Yeah. I'm, I'm not disagreeing with that. Yeah. I'm, I'm talking in terms of the understanding of my own inadequacy. But here's what I would add. Yeah. That the victim aspect of it right. is ministerial. That needs to be addressed ministerially, okay? Because it's not the same when somebody says I'm a, a victim. If we just go to law and constitution, we're missing 
we're missing something significant. So there, and it could end up there, but essentially I would certainly see that as something we need to approach uh, from a ministerial perspective. I'm talking about the law of my own mind. That's essentially what I'm saying. And I always have that in front of me as I minister, uh, both in the world and in the church, that, that I am you know, the problem. That yeah. I don't take away from anything that you said. Yeah. Okay. Well, we might pick up on this Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for your grace to us. We pray, Lord, that you would indeed teach us, that you would instruct us, that we would be clear, that our judgments would be right according to your word, that we would minister out of love and care and compassion, that we would not become prideful, but rather that we would be continually reminded of the sacrifice that Christ endured on our behalf. We ask your blessing on the service, and we pray, Lord, that you would guide and direct us in all things, and for your glory and your honor's sake. In Christ's name, amen.